Every effective communicator speaks to evoke a response from listeners, regardless of whether that is a smooth-talking politician seeking re-election or a fuming coach who is cussing and fussing in the locker room at his team during halftime trying to motivate them for better execution on the field or a radio personality giving you a 30-second word from our sponsor, or a faithful preacher of the gospel who stands up to say, thus saith the Lord. Every effective communicator speaks to evoke a response from the listeners. Among everything else, Jesus was a brilliant communicator. The one who spoke the world into existence knew how to put together a string of sentences that could motivate an individual or a crowd to make a certain response. Oftentimes in Jesus' ministry, he told stories. We call them parables. The word parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside. Balo means to throw. So a parable is a story that is thrown alongside real life. Throughout this summer sermon series, we're going to spend about eight weeks examining some of those brilliant, off-the-cuff, well-spun stories of Jesus. The first one comes to us from the back porch of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Today I want to read in your hearing verses 21 to 29. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 7, I'll begin reading at verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Matthew arranges his gospel around five teaching passages. The first and largest teaching passage is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. The second teaching passage comes in Matthew chapter 10. He gives us a discourse 
on missions. In Matthew chapter 13, you find the third lengthy teaching passage. It's the parabolic discourse where Matthew simply strings together seven parables, one right after the other. The entire chapter of Matthew 13 is about those seven small parables. In Matthew chapter 18, you come to the fourth lengthy teaching passage of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. It is the discourse on the church. It shows us as a church how we deal with sin, how we forgive one another, how we live with one another. And then the fifth teaching passage comes in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. It's the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus tacks on the tail end of that a lengthy discussion and instruction on eschatology, the study of last things. As Moses had five books in the Pentateuch, so Matthew has five teaching passages in his gospel. It's as if Matthew is telling his reader, if you listen to Jesus, you'll have everything that you need to know. For Jesus is even greater than Moses. Our first teaching passage is the Sermon on the Mount. It is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. And in this sermon, it seems to me that Jesus is comparing and contrasting two forms of righteousness. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I, I, never, I never found in any book. I just kind of synthesized it together, and I came to this conclusion. It appears that Jesus is comparing and contrasting what I call cultural righteousness versus Christ righteousness. Cultural righteousness is based on human effort, but Christ righteousness is based on divine appointment. It is a gift from God Almighty. Cultural righteousness, it says that heaven is a right, but Christ righteousness says that heaven is a gift. Cultural righteousness says if you do more good than bad, it'll tip the scale in your favor and you will earn and merit your salvation. But Christ righteousness says there is no one good, no not one. No one is righteous enough, no one is innocent enough to do enough good to earn salvation. It is all based upon what's been done for us in Christ. Cultural righteousness says that you can be innocent in and of yourself. Christ's righteousness says the only path to innocence is through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. You get throughout this sermon, it would appear to me that Jesus is saying that cultural righteousness is no righteousness at all. Because you cannot declare yourself right. You cannot make yourself right. You cannot declare yourself innocent. It is only through Christ that we are declared righteous. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. That because of our faith in Jesus, God credits the righteous standing of Christ as belonging unto us. So that when God looks at you and looks at me, we are as innocent as Jesus Christ. Throughout this sermon, Jesus is imploring the crowd to trust him. For he is the only pathway unto genuine, eternal righteousness. I like the fact that Jesus can make something that is so complex simple. I mean, any clown can make anything complicated. 
any clown can make the simple complicated. But Jesus, he seems to simplify that which is complex. He says, listen, you just have to follow me. Because all the people are traveling down one of two roads. This is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Traveling down two roads, and on these two roads there are two gates, and these two roads with two gates lead to two distinct destinations. You travel down that broad road at the wide gate, it'll lead to destruction. But you travel down the narrow road through the narrow gate, it will lead you unto eternal life. Jesus comes to Chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, and all people, the billions upon billions of people that have ever walked planet Earth, all people are compared to one of two trees. All people are like trees, and they produce either one of two types of fruit. It's either ripe or it's rotten. When you come to our passage, the story that's embedded in chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, there are two men who build two houses. They have two outcomes. I like it when Jesus makes the complex simple. He says, if you want to be right before the Lord, you simply have to trust me, follow me, and put my words into practice. Now, there is a biblical principle that is woven through the thread of Scripture. And the biblical principle is this, that knowing precedes doing. You are not saved because of what you do. You're saved because of who you know. And if you know Jesus personally, you will do what he tells you to do passionately. Because who Jesus is will tell you what you need to do. So knowing always precedes doing. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus because throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there is an ethical command and an element to this sermon. But Jesus is not saying that you are saved simply because you don't get mad at your brother. He's not saying you're saved because you don't have lustful thoughts. He's not saying you're saved because you refrain from giving a certificate of divorce to your spouse. He's not saying that you're saved just because you keep your word or you're generous with your resources or you're just kind even to enemies and you even pray for your enemies. He's not saying you're saved because you do those things. You are saved because of who you know. And if you know Jesus, then you know what you ought to do. Because doing flows from knowing. Knowing precedes doing. If you know Jesus personally, you will do what he says passionately. Jesus clarifies this in the opening lines of our passage. Beginning of verse 21. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will tell them, I don't know you. They'll say, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do mighty miracles in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you evildoers. Uh, friends, uh, can there be any more chilling words of Jesus recorded in all of Scripture? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Lord, Lord, that double name, double term of endearment and affection. 
Apparently, there'll be many people who think they're on the right path, who think they're the good tree with ripe fruit, who think they're the wise builder building a solid house. They will say unto Jesus, Lord, Lord, but they will not be given access into God's kingdom. They will refute that. They'll rebut that by saying, but Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name? The word prophesy means, did we not speak about you? Did we not even testify about you? Did we not even teach and preach about you? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons? Did we not do mighty, miraculous acts in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoer. For Jesus to say to them, I never knew you, does not mean he fails to have cognitive knowledge of them. This is Jesus we're talking about. Jesus knows everything about everything. He knows everything about everyone. He knows everything and everyone equally and exhaustively well. He is the creator of all things, seen and unseen, visible and invisible. He, has, he is your creator, whether you acknowledge him or not. He's the one who fashioned you and knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything equally, exhaustively well. But when he says, I do not know you, that word know means I do not recognize you as belonging to me. I do not recognize you as belonging to me. What Jesus is communicating on the back porch of this great sermon, he is reminding us that knowing precedes doing. You've got to know Christ personally in order to do what he tells you to do passionately. Don't, don't think your salvation is found and bound in your religious activity. No, it's not your doing that makes you saved. It's who you know that makes you saved. And if you know Jesus, you'll do what he tells you to do. He says, I do not know you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Jesus, once again, is reiterating that thread that is woven throughout all of Scripture, that knowing him precedes doing things for him. Knowing precedes doing in John's gospel, following the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples came to him and they said, uh, Jesus, tell us, what is the work of God that we are to do? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, knowing precedes doing. In Luke chapter 10, when the 72 were sent out, they come back and boy, they're, they're having a revival. I mean, they're talking about all the things they had done, all the things they had seen. And Jesus quickly tells those disciples, do not rejoice simply because the spirit submitted to you. Just because the demons submitted to you, those evil spirits, don't rejoice just because the evil demonic spirits submitted to you. You rejoice because your name is written in the book of life. Knowing precedes doing. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will gain entrance into God's kingdom. And even when they say, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did mighty miracles. I find it interesting that Jesus does not affirm, nor does he deny their claims. He just simply says, I never knew you. I never knew you as belonging to me, so depart from me, you evildoers. He then comes to the conclusion of the sermon. It's the parable. 
that's embedded in our text. Therefore, anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice, it's like a wise man who built his house on rock. The storm came, the water fell, the rain fell, the waters rose, the wind blew against that house, but that house withstood the storm because it was built on the rock. But anyone who hears my word and does not put my words into practice, it's like a foolish man who went and built his house on sand. The Rains fell, the waters rose, the winds blew, and that house fell with a great crash. You hear that little story, and you realize this is not Jesus giving construction advice on how you build a sturdy home. What he is telling us is this is how you build a sturdy life. It has well been said that the Sermon on the Mount was not given to us to be admired. It was given to us to be obeyed. Jesus said, I give you my words. And the reason I give you my words is so that you will put them into practice. The difference between the person who puts them into practice and the person who fails to put them into practice is the difference between salvation and condemnation. It's not that you're saved by your works or by your efforts, but your works and efforts reveal your salvation because knowing precedes doing. But if you know Jesus, you will do what he tells you to do. You'll hear his words and put them into practice. Apparently, this was a consistent theme throughout the life of Jesus, even before his ministry. Because eventually, the little brother of Jesus, James, who pins the letter that bears his name, he caught it. He got it. Because James says in chapter 1 of his epistle, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Don't just merely listen to God and his word. Don't just merely allow it to just soak over you. Don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't just listen to the word of God, but do the word of God. Because I think that James may be reflecting on this conclusion that Jesus preached in his powerful sermon. Anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Anyone who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. When you stop and consider this parable that's in front of us, there are several things these two men have in common, right? These two men, they have the same goals and dreams and aspirations. Both of these men want to build a sturdy house for the ages. They want a strong structure to be built. And I got to be honest, when the building project was completed and the sun was shining and the birds were singing and the flowers were in bloom, it looked like both houses were strong enough. It looked like both houses were sturdy enough. The difference between these two houses was the material that was under the surface. The difference between these two houses, the difference between these two men was in the building material that was unseen to the observer. The person who just passed by on the street 
They saw the first man's house and they said, well, that looks strong enough. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. They passed by the second man's house and they said, well, you know what? It looks great. Looks, looks strong. I mean, it's a beautiful day and, and everything is just shimmering against uh, all the material that he used. The difference between these two projects, the difference between these two houses, the difference between these two men was what was under the surface. The, the building material of the foundation. The first man, he dug deep in Palestinian dirt until he hit bedrock. And once he hit the rock, then he structured the footers in place so that his structure, his house could be strong because it had a firm foundation. The Bible says this man is wise. The second man, he didn't dig into the Palestinian dirt. He didn't put in the effort to get down to the bedrock. No, he just built his house on sand. Why? Well, I guess it was quicker. It was a shortcut. It was easier. Maybe it just simply made sense to him. But he built his house on sand. And Jesus calls that man a fool. Let me give you a little Greek lesson. Uh, the Greek word that's translated as fool is the Greek word moron. I'm not joking. Uh, if you ever employ the term moron, then really you're speaking Greek and you didn't even know it. You're smarter than you realized. You know some Greek because the Greek word moron is the word that's translated as foolish. Jesus says the person who builds his house, builds his life on sand is a moron, a fool. A fool lives life as if God doesn't exist. And this man built his house on sand and Jesus called him, in Greek, a moron. In English, we translate it as foolish. The reality is, in this story, in your life, in my experience, you can live life on earth with or without Christ, can't you? You can build your marriage with or without Christ, can't you? You can even parent children with or without Christ. You can build a lucrative business with or without Christ. You can drive a luxurious car. You can live in a large house. You can even have a big nest egg in the bank account. You can do all of that with or without Christ, can't you? We know a lot of people that build their life on Christ, and they have all those things and so much more. And we also know some people who build their life on something other than Christ, and it looks like the wicked are winning. It looks like that the rich are getting richer. It looks like that the pagan is wagging his finger at the face of God, and God is doing nothing. It would appear that you can live life in this world with or without Christ. I made a statement a few moments ago that the only difference between these two men and the building projects that they had was in the building material that was unseen. But that foundation, or lack thereof, was revealed 
when the storm came. You read the story, and the way Jesus presents it, the same storm hit both houses. The description of the storm is the same for the wise man and the foolish man. The rains fell, the waters rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. But the house that was built on the firm foundation, the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, withstood the storm. And the house that was built on something other than Christ, built on sand, fell with a great crash. You and I come to this story and Jesus is reminding us that that it's possible to live life with or without him. But I wouldn't advise you to live without him. It's possible to have a marriage and parent your children and run a business with or without Christ. But I I wouldn't suggest that you do it without Christ. Because eventually the storm will come. You and I live in Alabama. We know something about storms, don't we? It's commonplace for tornadoes to come through our neck of the woods. In fact, it's not abnormal for us to have to prepare and brace for one of those big boys, F4, F5 category tornado. Some of us have experienced those storms. We've heard those storms. We've lived through those storms by the grace of God. When Jesus says that the storm comes and beats against both houses, he's describing something that is much more catastrophic than an F5 category tornado. What does he mean, the storm? What is this storm that hits both houses that neither house gets uh, able to sidetrack the storm. What is the storm to which he refers? I think that a careful reading of the Old Testament would reveal that what Jesus calls a storm, Old Testament prophets call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, synonymous with the second coming of Christ. That second coming of Christ, it will beat against every house. And if you are in Christ, a wise person who has built your life on the firm foundation of Jesus, you've got nothing to be afraid of. You can welcome the day of the Lord. You're eager for the day of the Lord because you know that when the day of the Lord comes, you and everything in your house, it will be safe and secure because you're built on the foundation of Christ. But the day of the Lord is not something that is enjoyed to the person, to the house that's built on sand. Because that storm will come against that house too. And there'll be a great crash. And it will not be able to overcome the storm. It will be overwhelmed by the storm. The Bible tells you about the day of the Lord not to strike fear in your heart. The Bible tells you about the day of the Lord to evoke faith in your heart. It's not for you to respond in fear. It's so you respond in faith that, yes, yes, Jesus is coming back. And, yes, he is the mighty Messiah. And, yes, he is the sovereign Savior of the universe. And everything that I give to him, everything I entrust to him, everything I build upon him is something that will will, will stand forevermore. 
And so because we have Jesus, we have nothing to fear when it comes to the day of the Lord. But if you don't have Christ, then the day of the Lord is a treacherous day. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, be a wise builder. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, be careful how you build. No one can lay a better foundation than the one that's already been laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you build will be subject to fire and testing. So build your life, build upon Jesus, and, and do it with excellence. Do it with integrity. Do it with eagerness. And build, Paul says, with gold and silver and precious metals, not with wood and hay and straw. Because whatever you build in your life, whatever your life consists of, it will be subject unto the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, he will test everything by fire. And that which is built in a flimsy way with hay and straw, it'll simply be burned up. But that which is built with precious metals of the Lord will become like pure gold. So build well, build wisely. You cannot build on a better foundation than the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that when Jesus is talking about the storm, the storm is going to hit every house. I think he's talking about the day of the Lord. But I'll also say this. In 23 years of pastoral ministry, I've witnessed that the same proverbial storms hit just about every house. Not to the magnitude of the day of the Lord, but still, though, even if it's a small thunderstorm, proverbially speaking, it can still rowdy you a little bit, can't it? It can still shake you a little bit. What am I talking about? I'm talking about just the suffering that happens. It's, it's part and parcel with the human condition. Because we live in a fallen, a fallen world, we, we experience suffering and sickness. So sometimes the storms hit, and we call it cancer. And sometimes the storm hits, and it's the loss of a child. Sometimes the suffering may be the death of a loved one. Sometimes that howling wind you and I may call unemployment. Sometimes it may be relational stress that just keeps you up at night. It's, it's, it's the struggle and the strain. It's the sickness. It's the sadness. It's the turmoil. It's the tragedy. It's those little storms that happen throughout our lives. It, it doesn't measure the magnitude of the storm, the day of the Lord, but still, if you're standing at the casket of your loved one, you feel the rain falling, don't you? And you feel the water rising, don't you? And you hear the wind howling, don't you? Over these last few weeks, we as a faith family, um, we've we've probably had more funerals than any of us really wanted to have. Some of our dear friends have gone on to be with the Lord. And if you've been with us over these last few weeks or even last several years, there are often sometimes when you come here to a funeral and a worship service breaks out. <laughs> have you noticed that? I mean, you think you're coming to a funeral and you come to this funeral and it looks like a Sunday morning worship service and, and we're worshiping the Lord with everything that's inside of us. 
don't ever take that for granted. What a great blessing by the grace of God for us to be able to deal with death with a great hope of Jesus Christ. For those who are outside this faith family, they come to a funeral that we have, like the one we had last, uh, yesterday or last week or last couple of years. And I stand at the back as they leave and they'll tell me, you know what? I have never been to a funeral like this. I've never been to a funeral that's this uplifting. I've never been to a funeral where this much praise breaks out. And every time somebody outside the faith family of First Baptist Pelham experiences that and tells me that on the way out the door, it's as if the Lord reminds me, hey, don't take that for granted. What a beautiful gift of grace that God has given this faith family to be able to grieve together in such a way That we know that our friends lived a good life because they lived a life that was built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. It was Alistair Begg who said, Any foundation that cannot handle the torrent of death is far too flimsy upon which you can build your life. Any foundation that cannot handle the torrent of death is far too flimsy upon which you can build your life. If your foundation can't handle death, it's too flimsy. If your foundation can't carry you to and through death, it's too flimsy. If, if whatever you're centering your life upon, whatever you're building your life from, whatever is the foundation of your life, if it, if it can't handle death, it is far too flimsy for you to spend all your time and effort trying to build. Because when this day comes, when the death day comes for you, beloved, it will not matter how much money you have in your bank account. All the titles that you've accumulated won't matter. All the accomplishments you've achieved won't matter. Even all the things you've done for your family won't matter. The only thing that's going to matter is what did you do with Jesus? Only Jesus can handle the inevitability of death. Only Jesus can handle the torrent of death. So if you try to build your life on anything other than Jesus, it's far too flimsy. But because Because of Jesus, you know you've got a sure foundation in this life and in the one to come. You've got a sure foundation that'll take you to death and through death. You've got a a firm foundation that'll take you from this place to that place, from this uh, terrestrial shore to that celestial shore. If you are in Christ, then you've got a sure foundation. The apostle Paul said, where, O death, is your sting? The power of sin, the power of sin is... uh, the power of the sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. I came this morning to tell you that Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Jesus died a sinner's death. Jesus climbed a criminal's cross. Jesus took the punishment that you deserved. He stretched his arms wide. He, they hoisted him into the air. He drank every last drop of your condemnation. And God said in Jesus to tell us, 
die. It is finished. Payment for your sin is completely paid in full. And they took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave. He stayed there on Friday. He stayed there all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, every gospel writer tells us that Jesus got up. The dead man began to walk again. The one who went to death went through death. And on the other side of death, he's standing. I don't know about you, but I want to build my life on the one who can handle the torrent of my death, who can handle the torrent and the inevitability of your death. And on the other side, he's still standing. And if he's standing, I'm going to stand with him because that's my Jesus and I build my life on him. If your money, if your titles, if your accomplishments, if your identity, if your choices, if the things that matter to you in life can't carry you through death, then anything you're building your life upon is far too flimsy. Only Jesus can take you to death and through death. And Jesus comes and he personally escorts those that belong to him, those whom he recognizes as his own. He comes and receives us unto himself. And he escorts us to eternity. So that a friend here in church has told me on more than one occasion, when you come to your funeral, the only thing that matters is what did you do with Jesus? And if it matters that much on your death day, it should matter that much every day. If Jesus matters that much on your death day, then he ought to matter that much every day. Jesus says, the person who hears my word and puts it into practice is like a man who built a house on rock. He or she is a wise builder. But the person who hears my words and fails to put them into practice. It's like the person who builds his house on a sand. And he or she is a moron. Just foolish. Because when the storm strikes, the small ones, and I promise you when the big storm strikes, only the houses built on Christ will withstand the storm. Any house that's not built on Christ will fall with a great crash. As soon as Jesus said that, with the crash still ringing in their ears, Jesus dropped the mic, walked off the stage. That's the end of the sermon. What a mic drop! They can still hear the ringing of the crash in their ears and the listeners turn one to another and Matthew tells us they're amazed stunned even because Jesus teaches as a man of authority what does that mean it means Jesus speaks as if he knows what he's talking about he speaks as if we have to listen he speaks as if, woe to us if we don't listen. He spoke as one with authority. 
not like all their teachers of the law. <laughs> you think there were any teachers of the law in the crowd that day? If there were, they felt the barbed wire word. Because the teachers of the law, they spoke with little authority. But the word of God, God in the flesh, spoke with the authority of Almighty. And he's telling us, knowing precedes doing. If you know Jesus personally, you will do what he tells you to do passionately. So you'll hear his word. You'll put it into practice. You'll be like a wise builder who built his house on a rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground, sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground, sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteous alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Because all other, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friend, Upon whom, upon what are you building your life? We're all builders. We're either wise or foolish. We're all trees. We're producing either ripe fruit or rotten fruit. We're all travelers. We're either going down the wide road, the wide gate that leads to destruction, or the narrow road through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. But friend, upon whom, upon, what are you building your life? If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, today can be the day when you go from a foolish builder to a wise builder. And you can build your life upon Jesus Christ. Now I promise you, you'll never regret it. I promise you, you'll endure every storm with success. You'll stand on the other side of that storm. And so if you have not placed your faith in Jesus today, I urge you. As soon as we start singing, come forward, take a minister by the hand and say, I need to build my life on Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you are a wise builder. You have built your life on Christ the very best of your ability. You know that knowing precedes doing. If that's you, my friend, do not leave this sanctuary without at least saying thank you, Jesus. I mean, at least, at least. Stop and say, thank you, Jesus, because this building project was not your idea. It's the idea of Jesus. It's because God opened up your eyes unto his salvation that you are building your life squarely upon the sure foundation of Jesus. So if that's you, friend, if you're in Christ, you better just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving me before the storm came. Thank you for saving me before the day of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for my salvation. So at the very least, I want you to say thank you. And if you know Christ, not only do I want you to say thank you, but I want you to pray. I want you to pray for some people that are in your life, people that you love, people that you care about. But they're building foolishly.
They're building a flimsy foundation that will not stand. It will not last. And so not only, friend, I want you to say thank you, but I want you to come and pray. I want you to pray. I want you to pray for the morons of your life. I want you to pray for the foolish people that are building flimsy foundations. Because by God's grace, he's holding off the day of the Lord, giving them another opportunity to be saved. So maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you pray for your spouse, you pray for your children, you pray for your grandchildren. Oh, maybe you're praying for your neighbor, maybe you're praying for a coworker, whoever it is. Friends, I just want you to come and pray. Just want you to come and pray. Just kneel here. Maybe, maybe your heart's grieving because of all the things that we've experienced and walked through, the death that we've encountered over the last few weeks. And maybe you just need to come and say, God, help me to grieve in a good way, to grieve as a person with great hope in you. Whatever it is, you respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We thank you for being our Christ, being a sure foundation. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.